fantastic. Um, we are in John chapter 4. We're ending John 4 today. It has been such a joy. Uh, if you guys can't tell uh, from the time that we've been in John, I love John. It was one of the first gospels that I really got into. It was um, been, it's one of those books that I think we've talked about already that anybody can engage with John. If, you're, if you are a brand new believer, it's fantastic. The readability of John is incredibly high. Uh, it is filled with the love of Jesus, the personal side of Jesus. Um, it is very beautifully written, incredibly approachable. Uh, but really the book of John is like a, a fine wine or figure out whatever you like that gets older and gets better. Um, that the more you engage with it, the more you sit with it, this thing has incredible layers and depth to it. So we're taking our time going through John, uh, and hopefully we're going to kind of do all of the above. We're going to grab some of the, the, the easy things that are really easy to grab and grab a hold of and be like, oh my gosh, this is so encouraging. We'll grab some of the deeper things. Uh, and I just love that John has all of these components. Um, who's got one of those John journals? Oh, let me see that real quick. Memes? If it's not too late, and some of you are like way too ferocious of note takers to get one of these. They're like five bucks on Amazon. Uh, but as we teach through the Bible, uh, these are fun to pick up. So this is just the Gospel of John, and it's got all of these opportunities for notes on one side. And so if you want something that's neat and tidy uh, that you can take notes as we go along, they're on Amazon. I think they're five bucks. Um, I get a royalty check from them for putting it out there, so appreciate if you put KB in the checkout line. Uh, just kidding, just in case there was anybody that was taking that serious. Uh, but they're super helpful. We do invite you guys to be taking notes. We also invite you, whether it's on your phone or the tactile, old school, uh, bring your Bibles. Let's make sure to get in them, mark them up, and engage with them, for he is the word. These are his words, and we desire to listen to what Jesus says and do them. With that, let's open up to John chapter 4 as we're introduced with Jesus as the healer. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water and wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, I didn't say where I was starting. In verse 46 of John chapter 4 is where we started. We're in verse 48 right now. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to feel better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, he, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning as we engage with your word. Even now, as we're reading through this, this first miracle, and we'll get to the second in a few minutes, there's just the, there's the reminder that for us that we need to remember 
that Jesus, you are healer, that you are not some distant and far off God, but you came near, took upon flesh, and dwelt among us. And we're so grateful for that. Father, I even pray for us now as we're engaging, would, would you increase our faith? We think of the centurion servant who says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Give us fresh eyes, hearts, hands, and bodies that believe in word and deed. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So up to this point in John, John has been incredibly clear on who Jesus is. This is one of John's huge mega themes throughout John is high Christology. All of these things, who Jesus is, that he is Messiah, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is rabbi, that he's from Nazareth, that he and the Father are one that we're going to see this week. We have seen um, that he is the word, he is eternal, that the theological term that John uh, puts in front of us, or not the term, but the doctrine that we believe, that we see all throughout John is the hypostatic union, that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And we're going to see that in our text again today. But this week, we're introduced to another aspect of Jesus in which we haven't seen yet. So if you are a note taker uh, and you like to mark up your Bible, just make a star. Hey, this is the first moment in John that we see Jesus in the identity of healer come forward. Uh, and so... Here we get to see Jesus uh, step forward in a healing role. This is important because nobody, his ministry is still new. We don't, we don't know the, all there is to know about Jesus yet. Really, we've had a wedding at Cana. And that miracle, even though for us as we read it as, you know, there's whatever, 75 people of whoever's in here right now, 75 of us read it, and that's like, well, that's big news. The people who saw the, the miracle of the wedding at Cana was like, maybe 12 people or less, and they were servants. So the only way the, the story of the wedding at Cana could have gotten out is by people going and sharing and telling, which is quite fascinating because that's where this, kind of, this story comes in. Hey, Jesus' reputation has been growing. Again, we're at the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. This man who's coming to find Jesus, he lives 25 miles away from where Jesus is at. Now, for us, that's not a big deal. That's like, you know, a 30-minute drive to, you know, carpentry or something. That's probably not 25. I don't know how far it is. It feels that far. Um, but for them, of course, there's no modern travel. This is, this is a walk. This guy's walking 25 miles. At, there's an incline of about 1,300 feet from Cana, excuse me, from Capernaum to Cana. And this man whose son is ill he doesn't know what else to do, but he hears these rumors of this guy, this rabbi, this person named Jesus. He's like, I don't know what else to do. It's this moment of desperation. I don't know if you guys have ever found yourself in a spot of desperation, and you were like, I don't know what to do. In fact, there's probably many of you in this room who you're very first encounter with Jesus was stemmed by a moment of desperation. I don't know what to do. My world is falling down around me. I can't do it on my own. This is that man's version. As his son is deathly ill, there is no hope for his son. 
unless someone intervenes. Again, we read this and we think nothing of it, but it is shocking. Like, your son's deathly ill. You go on a two-day journey, and it's going to take you at least two days to get back. Like, I can fly to India and back at that time. Well, depends on, you know, I'd be pushing it. I'd be really tired. But the point is, there's a desperation. And this man's just living on a, really a shred of hope. He barely knows anything about Jesus yet. He, like, legitimately, he has heard whispers of Jesus. And it's enough for this guy to leave his son, who's sick and dying, and go find Jesus. I bring this up for a couple reasons. One's because it's what the narrative is. But two, man, do we take for granted? This man had whispers of who Jesus was. We have this really amazing book called the Bible that aren't just whispers. Some of them are loud and bold proclamations. In essence, sort of our... Mount Sinai gift. And yet there was this man who heard a a whisper, a rumor perhaps, and it was intriguing enough, and he was desperate enough. He said, I gotta go check it out. So he goes. He finds Jesus, and he comes to him. (coughs) Comes to him. He tells my son is on the brink of death. I don't know a whole lot about you yet. My faith is really pretty incomplete. But will you do something? Will you do something? Will you please do something? Jesus responds to him. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. This might seem like a little bit of a a jab on the surface to us with this man. He says, unless you've seen signs, you will never believe. And what Jesus is doing here is he is actually giving us really good prophetic insight, even to today, of what do you really want? Or like we've heard him ask before, what is it you're seeking? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a sign? Or are you looking for the Messiah? This you that Jesus speaks of over this man, it's not, this is actually plural. So in Texan, this is y'all. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Again, if we were to spend a really long time in this passage, we'd understand that Jesus is also dismantling a poor theological viewpoint that's held by most Jews during this time, and that is that God is distant. He is not personal. That God is far off. He is not one who engages in our life today. He is not personal. Our job is to just obey and just fear, and it's not that those don't play a role, but Jesus is dismantling this. Part of the incarnation dismantles this thought process in full But Jesus is not chastising this man at all. He's teaching the importance of faith with right motive. 
And the official's not put off at all by Jesus' response. And again, he's desperate enough to say, I don't care. Please help. Please help. This is the need I have in this moment. Please help. Please help Jesus be there. And Jesus just follows up simply, go. Your son lives. I don't know how many of you have been around folks who, when they pray for healing, get into this strange formulaic, their voice changes. All of a sudden, we start snapping our fingers and trying to make things happen. Uh, and Jesus just simply says, go. Your son will live. And what does the man do? This part is almost more mind-blowing to anything else because I wouldn't do what he does. What does he do? He goes. He just leaves and goes back on his two-day journey to go figure out whether or not his son is alive. That's wild to me. I'd be like, Jesus, thank you for those kind words. Please come. Jesus, please come. I need to make sure. But this man, he just, he, he listens to the words of Jesus and then he does them. Does that sound familiar to any other story that we've heard in John so far? Anybody? Who else said something like, listen to Jesus' words and do whatever he tells you? Who? Mary, his mother, right? As he changes water into wine. And what happens when the servants listen to what Jesus says and do it? They see transformation. They see kingdom of God. They see the heavens come down to earth as there is transformation. Remember back to the end of chapter one where we're talking about Jacob's ladder. When Jesus, in essence, says that he has become this ladder, he is this ladder. He is the means in which heaven touches earth. And the way in which that happens is through listening to the words of Jesus and doing them. And once again, we see this pattern completed. This man heard the words of Jesus he did them, and what happens? His servants can't even wait. They meet somewhere halfway in between. They say, your son's fever has left. They rejoice, they're excited, and that's all they care about, and they just moved on, right? No. His son being healed was huge, but what does the father do? What does he do after his servants tell him that he's been made well, that his fever's gone? What time? Okay, okay, this is cool. His fever's gone but I need more information. When did this happen? It happened at the seventh hour. That was the same hour that Jesus told me, go, your son will live. And then what happens? They believe. The miracle, the sign was beautiful. It's wonderful. It's glorious. But it is not the point. which is why Jesus says, unless you see signs, you won't believe. He's getting after their heart of saying, all you guys want is the sign. You don't actually want me. And what Jesus will continue to do is in his grace, love, mercy, and sovereignty, continue to give signs. Well, people are glad to take the things of Jesus, but are really okay with rejecting him. And what we'll see is there's no room in the kingdom for such a practice. You see, the result of the sign is people believing in Jesus. And that makes sense in John, right? Since the, the point of the book is, I have written these things so that you might believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. This family, as a result of being confronted with the reality of Jesus, and yes, experiencing great healing, they found life in his name. Miracle number two, we're going to keep reading. This is in chapter 5, 1 through 18. Now this, now after this, this after this, by the way, is about three months later. Jerusalem's about 100 miles from where he was. After this, there was a, a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there's in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic. It's called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews, they said to the man who had been healed, Is it the Sabbath? And it is, not, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. It was seen as improper or breaking Sabbath to carry a burden. And so he was holding his mat. So they got very frustrated. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that, is, that, is, was, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so here we have the third sign. First sign's water to wine. Second sign is the healing of the official son. Third sign that we see in the book of John is this one right here, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. Really interesting stories, and they're made really to go together. And so, but they're also quite different. We see the official, the father, he's the one that's pursuing Jesus like crazy, trying to find Jesus. This situation, it's the other way around. Again, we're going to notice that there's tension all throughout. Does Jesus seek me? Do I seek Jesus? How does it work? Yes. There's a both. This held together. Watch as we read and go throughout Scripture. This tension is held all the way throughout. But here we have this beautiful scene that also is probably a really gross scene at the same time. In our modern West Century Western viewpoint, uh, 21st century time, we 
maybe not, unless you've traveled to like India or another third world country where they have public bathhouses um, and places where people who are extremely sick or who are poor or who uh, have legs. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a leper colony before. It is not like the prettiest. There's tons of beauty, but oftentimes it's kind of a place to be avoided. This pool, and I think many of us think of it like an oversized hot tub, uh, wrong view. That's not what this pool is. You actually should think more like a football field, honestly. It, they said it, sh- it was about a football field's length and about 20 feet deep. If you've been and visited uh, Israel, which I've never done, you most likely have visited this place. Uh, did you guys visit it? Which is, all oh, that's so amazing to me. Uh, one of these days, I would love to visit Israel. Haven't had the opportunity But I love, once again, that the word of God, which is written quite a long time ago, we go back and it's like, you can actually visit these places. Pretty wild. So anyway, there's all these sick people there. There's beggars. There's lame. It's also a place where people would commonly come as well because it's hot out. Uh, And so, but this is by far the most crowded place that Jesus has been when he performed a miracle. Everything else has been public, but like, public-ish. Like the, the water to wine, there were like, you know, 12, 15 people there maybe who got to witness and see this. It affected hundreds. This man, the official son, we don't really, could have been like two people, three people, probably more because the household ended up. So, but who actually got to witness it? Not very many. This one is very, very different. This one is going to be the most bold of all of them. So Jesus comes and he finds This man, and the language here is so interesting. I want us to see it. One is that Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. If you're a fan of the story of Zacchaeus, there's a a familiar language here. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, and there's this moment in Luke 19 where where he turns, and, and it's like Jesus and Zacchaeus lock eyes, and it says that Jesus saw him. And it's as if in that moment, something began to change. But Jesus, he sees him. This is a big deal because the majority of people who are laying around this pool are all people to be ignored by and large. They're people in society in which, yes, scripture actually calls us to take care of and to look after, but oftentimes they are ignored. And this man's been there for how many years? 38 years. Whew. Could you imagine? Again, these details in Scripture matter because it helps paint the picture. If you were actually to read this in the original language, this would actually, John is doing like a magnificent job in actually painting an image for the listeners. In fact, the way this would start was like, this is what I'd like to tell you next. It's the introduction of a story. And hey, we were at the Sheep Gate near Jerusalem. It was this pool. There were five colonnades around it. It was big. It was massive. There were lots of people and everybody. And again, we have a tendency to read things without inviting the Lord to incite our imagination and to release our imagination. But scripture's written in that way. Your whole person, not just your intellect, is called to engage. And so it's pretty amazing. And so he comes to this man, and 
And so the first thing we have to see is that he saw him. This is beautiful as we see that the creator of heavens and earth sees this man that in the midst of a myriad of other people who are sick and invalid and broken, he sees this one. And then it says that he knew him. Agenita is the, is the word in Greek. He knew him. And for us, again, we think like, oh, like he knew him like he knows all of us. And again, we've got to be careful because we think we have a tendency to think on the fully God side of Jesus. The, the language in this actually is not that he had supernatural knowledge of this man. It is that he learned about this man. He came to know this man. In the sense that he actually, most commentators talk about how he probably talked to some of the other people who had been there for a little while and said, hey, tell me about this guy. This is a moment where we see Jesus eagerly pursuing somebody that has been overlooked their whole life. And so then he comes and he almost again asks like this question that is a little bit, I don't know, seems insulting. I've been here for 38 years. What do you think I'm doing here, Jesus? Do you want to become well? The pool that they're sitting by next to, by the way, is a pool that had uh, they believed there were mysterious powers. Jews believed that it was this kind of common grace of God, mysterious thing where an angel might come and stir the waters, and if they like fell in or if they got in first, they might be healed. But it was this very impersonal, it was this very distant, random thing in which this belief had been. And so when Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, the man responds and he just says, look, yeah, I've been here for 38 years, sir which gives us indication that this guy has zero idea who Jesus is. For those of us who are like, oh, like Jesus is only going to do something for you if you know him. Jesus is only going to do something for you if you believe in him. Jesus is only going to do something. This totally messes with that worldview. This guy says, sir, it's not even rabbi. It's just, sir. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This is such an interesting response. This man's been here for 38 years hoping that maybe somebody bumps him into the water. He's lame. He can't walk. He can't move. He can't get in by himself. But he's still by the pool. It's this weird place where this man is entirely hopeless, and yet somehow there's still like this like little lingering glimmer of hope. I'm here because what else am I going to do? But in all reality, I'm probably not going to get any better. Nobody can put me into the pool. So do I want to get well? Of course I want to get well, but such is life. This is my lot. But Jesus has other things in store. Jesus demonstrates that he's healer. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Once again, you guys might feel like I'm hitting this, pounding this into the ground, and I will pound it into the ground until my dying breath. What did this man do? 
He listened to the words of Jesus and he did what he said. And what happened? He was healed. Transformation. Heaven broke into earth. We think we all want these amazing formulas. If I invest in crypto at this point, this point, and this point, then I will get X amount of dollars on my return. We want these formulas. And sometimes what's crazy is Jesus actually gives us one. It's just one we don't like. Listen to my words and do what I say. And what's so shocking is it's almost always an invitation. Whether it's come and follow me. Come and see. So this man takes up his stuff. He grabs it and he starts walking. He starts walking out 38 years with a bunch of other invalids, other people who were there. This is nuts. This is important on multiple reasons, but one of them is this begins to align the prophetic call that the Messiah would also be a healer. Isaiah 35, 6 reminds us of the prophecy of the lame that will leap like deer, or Isaiah 61, which speaks of the Messiah coming who will proclaim good news to the poor, give sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed. Jesus demonstrates that he's healer and that he's here. But so often... There are multiple things that are going on here. Because the sign is meant to point to something. What's interesting, the sign that we saw with the one before, with the Roman or with the other official, we don't know whether he was not a Jew or a Gentile or whatever, but we saw that he came to faith in Jesus and that he responded. We have actually no idea with the invalid what happened. We don't know if he responded in faith. We don't know if his whole household came to know Jesus. In fact, the text sort of implies not. So what the heck is the point of the sign? What's the point of the sign? This is where the rest of the story is important as we start talking about the Sabbath. So the point of the sign, signs always point to something. Signs of Jesus point to Jesus being Jesus, being the Messiah. So he demonstrates that he's healer. Yes, that's part of it. But what comes next is actually most shocking and will be the thing that will end up being the first real push towards his own execution. And that's that he healed this man on the Sabbath. So healing on the Sabbath uh, wasn't the primary. The initial issue is that the guy grabbed his mat, and he was walking around with his mat. Remember, it was really crowded. Lots of people saw him. He's got his mat around. Uh, We can all be sticklers about things, but, I mean, I think being a stickler about carrying around a mat after somebody's been healed after 38 years, we got some bigger problems, um, I think. But these Jews, they missed this opportunity. Legitimately, somebody who was unable to walk for 38 years, all of a sudden their entire life is changed. God has become near. He has come near. And they're worried about a stinking mat that is being held. They are missing out that Yahweh incarnate, Jesus, is in their midst. They are missing it. They're missing it. They're missing it. So they come and they go after the dude, and they're like, hey, why are you carrying your mat? And he's like, dude, the guy who just healed me, he said to, so no offense, but I'm going to listen to him. And then instantly you see the tone change. They could care less about this man. Who is that man? Who is he? Tell me. Tell me now. Who is he? Tell me. Because the Jews are scared. They don't know what to do. 
Their power is beginning to be challenged. Some of their ways of life are beginning to be challenged because what's happening doesn't fit in their neat and tidy box. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? He's like, I don't know. The man disappeared. There was a lot of people there. I don't know who it was. But then what do we see happen next? The man is in the temple, which would be the common thing to do if you've been healed from such a thing. You would go to the temple to go be cleansed. What happens? What does Jesus do? He finds him. He sought him out. Once again, he saw him. Because the point wasn't just that his body would be fixed. There's more to it. This is where things get more ambiguous because it, it, it looks, there's definitely hope for this guy. It's not like he's, we don't know for sure. But he comes to him. Jesus pursues him. He says, see, you're well. You listen to what I said. And look what happened. You're well, you're here, you're walking. That's amazing. This, you're well, it's your whole. This is similar to the theological uh, theme throughout scripture of shalom. You're well. You are well. But once again, he doesn't just Say, you're well, see you later. Because Jesus doesn't just care about the sign. He cares about more than the sign. You are well. Now go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. Here is a verse that I I believe has actually been used really inappropriately throughout the decades. Um, And we see... Sin does have natural consequences, but a verse like this could seem like a threat. Hey, don't sin anymore or else you're going to be you're going to be lame again. Don't sin anymore or this is going to happen. And it's not that sin doesn't have natural consequences, and not just natural, these are consequences that God set up from the foundations of the world because sin is going against the way in which God designed things to work. Ultimately, in John, the biggest picture of sin is this. It's unbelief that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Granted, we have to filter that through. We've got to continue to sift through. There's plenty of other things that are sin. But at its core, we'll see throughout the letter that sin at its massive, biggest umbrella is lack of belief. Paul says the same thing. It's lack of belief that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Once again, if people follow Jesus, if they hear the words that Jesus says, and they do them, that is a demonstration that we believe in Jesus. So ultimately, what Jesus' call to this man is, believe in Jesus, keep believing in Jesus, and keep obeying. This is not a veiled threat. It is a threat in the sense that if you experience a healing, or if you experience something amazing, or if you see this beautiful, marvelous thing, and you do not turn from your wicked ways, you actually aren't following Jesus. You are like the one who only wants the sign. They don't want Jesus. Sin in our lives is something that God calls us to continue to root out. Go and sin no more. That's the last that we really know of the man outside of the fact that he then goes and talks to the, this is the confusing part, is he goes back to the Jewish leaders and tells them that it's Jesus. Dude, why'd you rat on him? Um, 
But again, when we're looking at the story, what's the point? This is part of God's sovereign plan of heaven. Part of the point of this sign wasn't just to heal this man. It was also to start the clock. My hour has not yet come. Well, it's getting closer. Jesus made the choice. He willingly stepped forward and didn't just heal this man, but he goes on to teach what rightly should get him killed, and that's that he and God are one. And when I say rightly, because what Jesus does in this passage is commit blasphemy. Jesus says, he gives a, a doctrinal understanding of the Sabbath. Right? He says, the Father has been working. What he's saying is, even on the seventh day when it says God rested, God, who is the one who created the heavens and the earth, one of the key creative elements of the creator is that they are sustainer. They hold it all together. That does not stop on the Sabbath. If it did, poof, right? He holds it all together. When Jesus is saying, the Father has been working up until now, and I too am working, he's saying, guess what? We're tied together. Validating like John started the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It had been from the beginning. Not a thing was created that hadn't been created through him. So in this moment, Jesus is saying, guys, I'm God. Anybody, and I had a point in my walk with the Lord where I'm like, I don't know if Jesus really ever claimed that he was Yahweh, that he was God. Yes, it's actually going to get way more explicit, but it starts here. And this is why, and we see the explanation that John gives us. This is why they now plotted to kill him. Not only was he breaking Sabbath, but he was also claiming to be equal with God. Jesus is coming forward and he is saying, I am he. What are you going to do about it? And friends, for us this morning, he continues to do the same. I am he. What are you going to do? Worship team, you guys can come on up. What do we have to learn from this this morning? I think for many of us, again, we've got to be confronted with the reality of Jesus. I love that Jesus disrupts the status quo. I believe there's many of us who have missed out on many blessings and many signs even and beautiful moments that Jesus has put in front of us because we're unwilling to recognize them as being from Jesus. We either want to rationalize it or we want to point something else out or it doesn't fit into my neat, nice, tidy box. The Jews, as Jesus is appearing on the scene, have a nice, neat, tidy box, which to them is holy and beautiful and sacred, but it doesn't have room for Jesus. And friends, if your neat, tidy box doesn't have room for Jesus, it's not Jesus' box. But Jesus will continue to disrupt. Will we listen to his voice? Will we obey? Will we let tradition or rules get in the way of actually engaging with the living God? And when I say that, nobody, please, I'm always, we always submit and come under the word of God. but we don't want to miss out. 
Jesus, he is here. He is in front of us. And I think one of the things that I want us to remember, I, we didn't have time to do it this morning, but that section in, in John 5, it's, it's very much one, if you were in your community groups, maybe you practiced this where you reflected over this and closed your eyes and asked God to give you a picture and imagine what it would have been like to watch and see this man be healed. Many of us have zero framework for God healing. But our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can heal. He always heal. Remember, there were many at that pool. Many. But not all of them were healed. And that was Jesus. <laughs> but friends, have some of us lost, lost, lost the faith, the hope, the wonder that Jesus can and does want to intervene and provide healing here and now. The other piece that I can't help but get away from and felt like the Lord was laying on my heart strongly this morning was, was this, this response from the man when, when Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And ultimately what this man does is he gives a bunch of excuses. And you can see and you can almost hear the tone and the pain in the guy's voice. And it's, it's like, of course I want to get well, dummy. But here are all of the things that are getting in the way. I can't get in the pool fast enough. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm hurt. I'm old. Nobody cares about me. But at the same time, there's, there's a ton of hopelessness with still a glimmer of hopefulness. And yet I almost got the impression that there might be some here with us. This, you've actually experienced some form of healing in your life, that moment where Jesus called you out of darkness and into his glory, his light. And maybe you're in a season where you can kind of remember that hope, but there's this weird spot that you're in where hopelessness seems to be more dominant than a hopefulness. I mean, if that's you, I just really believe that Jesus wants to breathe fresh life into you. That he is our great redeemer. He's not distant. Some of us have developed a theology similar to that of the Jews of old, that our God is a distant God, but he is not far off. He is near. For our God sent his son Jesus to go to die on the cross on our behalf, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave victoriously, and he is now, as ascended, is seated on the throne, ruling and reigning, and he's given us his Holy Spirit to come and dwell among us. And some of us just need fresh life. Some of us need fresh hope. 